This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Writing scenario climaxes. Edward Barton. An AI screenwriter. And Nixon Unpardoned. Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Relier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Relier's release, and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Relay at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Cannon Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something. It's why they're... Protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost and Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardis to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. The thump of miniatures, the clatter of dice... The crunch of Doritos and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut, but here in the gaming hut, the miniatures are locked in furious battle on the edge of a chasm, the dice are all turning up ones and twenties, and Peter Frampton is coming most alive that he ever came alive, because we're at the scenario climax, and when we're at the scenario climax, it's worth a little gaze back to say, how did we get here? Robin, how do we get to the scenario climax? How do we write them? How do we make them happen. Well, those are um, kind of two related but separate questions, right? The question Goodness, of... Goodness, it's as though we had a whole segment to fill. Yeah, of how you get to the climax and what the climax is itself. And I think these are inextricably linked with issues of uh, player sense of control over the narrative versus making sure you have some kind of big, exciting... Reason to have played Climactic <laughs> event at the end that feels like an ending and isn't just oh, well, you circumvented all those problems so well that you didn't even notice that there was a problem, and uh, okay, I guess here's some cookies, right? And so there is, a, I think, an irreconcilable tension between whether uh, if a player feels too directed toward a big finish, they start to feel that they are just spectators in something that was going to happen anyway, but if you give them full range of control over all the possible things that could happen, it's much harder to determine whether that big thing is going to be a big thing. And so essentially you are offloading uh, onto the GM the task of making sure there's a big satisfying ending if you choose to do a sort of more open-ended scenario. And I've done both over the years, ones where here's just a situation, here's all the people in this situation, here's the problem, and the characters come into it and you fix it and it's up to the GM to improvise a uh, a big finish uh, versus things, uh, particularly in investigative scenarios, which 
tend to have more of a structure than, uh, say, you're knocking down the doors and uh, kicking over the orcs style uh, F-20 adventures. And so I think it's it's a big tightrope, first of all, between uh, how do you get people to that point? How many different ways are there to get to that point? Are there a bunch of different alternate climaxes? And then you start to run into various practical concerns for published adventures of uh, if you have a single big climax, that's a shorter word count than if you have three possible completely different big endings. And also the more like a structured narrative the scenario is on the page, the more satisfying it is for the GM to read and possibly easier for them to pull off than something that just, um, as I alluded to earlier, says, um, here's a complex emergent situation. Do something with it. So, Ken, is of that long uh, set of possible ways to think about this issue, which one do you want to grab onto and expand? Um, I, I kind of like to go back and touch on the notion of pre-planning a climax, because as many experienced GMs will have experienced, uh, about a third of the way through any scenario, the players almost always have diverged so far from your notes, unless you've got them literally hemmed into a dungeon, that planning Act 3 and Act 4 is an exercise in optimism rather than an act of, of wise uh, forethought. Because, uh, especially in sandbox games, especially in the sort of emergent emergencies, even in sort of more open-ended horror games, it's very difficult, unless you have a ticking villain clock, to determine that there even will be an Act 4. So, by and large, uh, plan for a confrontation as, as much as you want, but understand that you are setting up a, a box that may or may not ever be triggered, and don't visibly bend uh, reality to put people into the box to get your big fourth act uh, reveal or explosion or whatever it happens to be off. The The great goal is to have the players feel completely free to touch everything until the point they touch the fourth act box and it goes off and everyone is stunned, amazed, thrilled, and ideally satisfied at the end. So just the caveat of don't over plan it, especially outside, again, the, the boundaries either of a dungeon or of a super tight uh, ticking villain time bomb type story where, you know, at midnight, Dracula will emerge and destroy all of London. It, it is 10.15. Go. Uh, and then AM or PM, shut up, go. And then um, the uh, that scenario can be guaranteed to sort of hem you in chronologically. But anything that's more freeform than, than a dungeon or a, or a ticking time bomb creates the very real possibility that uh, no, the climax will have to take place somewhere else, and maybe you can move the uh, the anti-paladin and the horde of, of spider orcs to that new place, or maybe you can't, and you have to immediately come up with something that happens in that new place uh, that hopefully you've got uh, monster stats for. Right. So, as a writer of published scenarios, mm -hmm. uh, how do you uh, present the fact that uh, we want to give you the tools to have a big, satisfying ending that feels like the, the ending of narrative? Versus that realization that the players may veer in a radically different direction. How do you how do you fall on the two sides of that? Um, what I what I normally do with a published scenario is I publish scenarios of the general type. A problem must be solved. A thing must be done. There is a situation that is at hand. So in Whitechapel Black Letter, there will be a auction at the end for the book. In um, a, a more conventional murder mystery, there will be the period where they figure out who did it. And they will try and beard the villain in his den, or they will do something 
to create a confrontation between themselves and the villain. Uh, in a dungeon, obviously, it's super easy. You're just at the bottom of the haunted palace or whatnot. But it is then to load that confrontation with as much of the dramatic juice as you can, because regardless of what route they take to it, that's how they know they've finished the scenario in the first place. Now, if it's a much broader scenario, somewhere in um, uh, Germany, there is a werewolf terrorist, find him. It's hard to write the confrontation because you don't know if they're going to be on the top of a clock tower or down in the sewers or which city they're going to be in or whatever. So your job there is just to stat up the werewolf terrorist and give a bunch of really obvious to the GM in not obvious, obvious, but obvious to the GM how to play uh, that werewolf's tactics should they be confronted, hounded, uh, blown up with C4, whatever it happens to be. And so that the GM will always know given that they're going to find the werewolf, since that's the point of the scenario, where they're going to do it becomes less relevant because the GM either has a bunch of possible uh, moves or the GM is, is, is knows that going in and is expected to either lay clues to lead to the place the GM wants it to be or otherwise just make the, fi- the werewolf fight the exciting thing regardless of where or when or under what circumstances. Right. So the, the looser approach is to, rather than writing an ending in a published scenario is to provide a series of bullet points of here's the different things that could, you know, here's 10 ideas to end this uh, narrative. Mm -hmm. But if you're starting off with a premise of here's a mission and your job as uh, the player characters is to solve this problem and that problem, you know, we've alluded to a bunch of them. It could be find the werewolf terrorist, rescue the prince, destroy the amulet, what have you, that there's a a point at which all of these possibilities have to converge back. You can sort of imagine a diagram where all of the possibilities sort of blossom out first from the original uh, presentation of the premise to the players and then converge on, if not one, on several possible ways of, you know, you either find the amulet, you find the prince, and uh, that you are confronted with the final opportunity after undergoing a bunch of other steps, which may differ from adventure to adventure, into finally hitting that one thing and solving that problem. And you could lay it out uh, in such a way as here's, uh, we know you're going to eventually find the werewolf terrorist. Here's, you know, the four most likely places you're going to find him and how that is going to change, how the final confrontation goes down. And uh, you... uh, or you could, you know, at, create a structure where everything basically converges to a more worked out set piece where certain things are supposed to happen so that everybody uh, who plays this adventure has the uh, a, a very different adventure, but nonetheless, there's still one final confrontation. Um, now, some players even balk at the idea that the difficulty should be really high at the end in any way that makes a certain thing happen. And perversely, these are sometimes the same players who then complain that the most interesting possible thing didn't happen uh, due to their being successful. So how do you uh, tackle the idea of uh, difficulties and uh, squaring, making sure the funnest stuff occurs versus creating that sense of uh, freedom and possibility, even when the adventure has converged back to the resolution of the question that was posed at the beginning in the in the in the case of a tabletop adventure that i'm sort of uh running as opposed to one that i'm writing it's 
easier for me and I suspect for many experienced GMs to sort of play mental chess against the players and they do this and you're like, okay, that means that bad guy one does this and bad guy two does this and innocent but dangerous guy does this and the New York police department do this. And so you, you can sort of always see the board in opposition to them and then the bad guys can make decisions based on their knowledge of the board and it will end when it ends. And in those cases, the players will, I think, rightly feel that if they've done super clever things to sideline the New York Police Department, bad guy two and bad guy three, they should get to just roll over bad guy one with nary a qualm. And your job is to make that uh, beat down uh, satisfying, much as when they pull back the 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 the, um, uh, the curtain and it turns out that the great and terrible Oz is just this little old dude Um that's actually not anything the players did. That's just Toto making a, a spot hidden roll. But the uh, sort of the result of that is you you turn it around and it becomes an emotional climax as opposed to we have to battle this wizard with our battly powers. Um, and then now it becomes, oh, we get to do petitioning and granting and find out what the wizard wants and have a great role playing scene at the end. But in a written scenario, I think that the goal is primarily to leave questions of individual player satisfaction up to individual GMs and to write a series of possibilities. And certainly in a thing where you can legitimately say, but we did a thing that should have made this final combat easier. Um, assuming it wasn't avoid the whole final combat, uh, dodge the draft and move to New Zealand. The, um, uh, you should provide reward levels. So the, the, the werewolf terrorist, if you've done this, this and this, he will not have the advantage of his, uh, Stasi buddies because you knocked them out back during this, you know, possible scene that you may or may not have gotten to. He will, however, still have um, uh, the neutron ray because you didn't do this other thing with the professor who would have told you about how to counteract the neutron ray or whatever. So you sort of leave it based on the, the bumpers that they hit on the pinball machine or the paths they turn through the maze to determine what the ending's flavor is. And you can quite easily, I think, well, maybe not that easily, but uh, it's easy for me as a scenario designer to come up with a bunch of different flavors that the werewolf confrontation might have at the end while still keeping in mind, yeah, regardless of how great you did, he's still a werewolf terrorist. He's still uh, going to fight with a, a ferocity and inhumanity that you don't usually encounter in your common everyday villain. And one of the tricks then is if the player's previous successes are coming into play and uh, making arguably that final sequence uh, less challenging or complicated is to make the players aware in that scene that they have done so, so that it plays as an emotional reward rather than a nullity. Right. So yeah. it's not just that his Stasi guys aren't there to fight alongside him, but that he, you know, picks up his iPhone and calls his Stasi uh, pals and they don't show up right. and he gets mad and turns all werewolfy. And so that you feel that uh, something that you did is, is landing and having an impact here rather than just that, Oh, you just missed an interesting thing that uh, could have happened. You could have fought uh, another awesome Stasi guys, but instead no. Yeah. Um, another challenge too, in writing uh, adventures is that, uh, particularly uh, maybe this is not so much an, a matter of endings but if you have a <laughs> i a, smell the end of a segment approaching <laughs> oh, okay well in that case let's go let's go under <laughs> no, our next no, segment. no 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 let's 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 end on a on an uh on, on, a, on a more conclusive note <laughs> not on an anti-climax of yes me no let's not sentence. let's not reward the players for making the right decision right um another challenge with uh, uh written adventures is that 
if you have various, uh, if a cool scene occurs, GMs want to make that happen. And so if you structure a potential cool scene, just leaving it up to the players as to whether that happens or not, as you should more often than not, the GM can be left with a sense that, oh, well, I didn't get to run uh, this scene where the, uh, uh, the uh, werewolf's dad uh, comes at everyone with a scythe and that read so well on the page. And, um, and, and, <laughs> and so, who doesn't uh, love scythes? Yes. And so, uh, you know, I think one of the, another trick is to, uh, I, I guess you just sort of have to resign yourself to that as one of the frustrations of the forum, but also look, if, if something seems really cool and you see that you've only got uh, one way to get there, I don't know if you, uh, again, where you value uh player choice as opposed to having all of the coolest things possible happen because I think that's, uh, you know, indivisible from the tabletop form. Right. And I think that that's why it is the tabletop form because a GM knowing that they have a scythe-wielding werewolf sire um, may put their thumb on the scale at some point to say, oh, all you missed it and all there is is a, is a, a, a dusty space on the wall of the barn where a giant scythe once hung. And then the players are like, oh, a giant scythe. This is going to be bitching. And so maybe they, uh, you've rewarded them with the anticipation of getting to fight a giant scythe wielding werewolf sire rather than rewarding them with having blown up the farm and unbeknownst to them killed the werewolf sire and, and uh, melted the giant scythe to nothingness. And as we say on the show, whenever a giant scythe melts, it's time for a new segment. Uh, let's head to another segment. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of nonstop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check. And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft annotated by the MI6, and the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs.
Once more, it's time for Ask Ken and Robin. And uh, this time, Patreon backer uh, Eric Jeppesen, or Patreon backer, because uh, we've had a little... Uh, some there's been some ire directed at us in the in the comments that apparently we've been pronouncing Patreon uh, incorrectly and actually it's Patreon. Um, now I don't know about you, Ken, but my preference uh, when someone tells me what to do as a creative person is to just keep what I was doing harder and hope that it becomes a belovable tick. <laughs> do, do it uh, more vigorously and affectation. Yeah, right. Because my like, thesis here is people people who got mad at Veronica Lake for always hanging her hair over her eye and perhaps yeah. engaging in workplace accidents. You know what she did? She hung her hair more over her eye. That's exactly. What and if if anything, I, I emulate Veronica Lake. You, you are the Veronica Lake of role playing, as yeah. I've always felt. And of course, I have a rationalization for this, which is that if you create a company with a made up internet name, I get to pronounce your made up name. However I want. That's true. And and listening to people who made things is how you get people saying GIF instead of GIF. Yes, exactly. And so the fact that you made something doesn't mean you know how it's pronounced. Right. Especially since Patreon sounds like like the good fellas uh, screw you pay me. Whereas Patreon mm. sounds like you're just giving it a, a nice pat on a the pat. back. Yeah, a pat. Yeah. I wouldn't like a pat. So Patreon backer Eric Jeppesen asks... Late Asked, 60- why did you waste five minutes of my segment about how to pronounce Patreon? But I'm sure he asked other things, such he, he, he as... He the whole segment. That, that, that was segment. my time, not Eric's. Okay. Uh, late 16th century Europe is rife with adventuring possibilities. I'm looking especially at English-Ottoman relations with Edward Barton as a focus. And so, uh, what matters of intrigue would you mind from such a volatile time? So, how do we make a campaign around Edward Barton. And although Eric knows who Edward Barton is, the rest of our listeners don't currently, but are about to, because Ken, you're about to tell us. You know it. Sir Edward Barton was a member of the Levant Company. The Levant Company was the chartered company who uh, had the royal monopoly to trade with the Ottoman Turkish Empire. And the Ottoman Turkish Empire in that day included the Levant, which is to say the uh, eastern coast of the Mediterranean between uh, Alexandretta and Alexandria, uh, Syria, Lebanon, Israel in our current parlance and Gaza Strip. So the, uh, the Levant company is formed. They were also called the Turkey company until they are, uh, merged with the, uh, Venice company, which then becomes the full on Levant company. So I assume that with the Venice company in the mix, they can trade with the Venetian islands as well, which probably makes sense. Anyhow, enough about the damn Levant Company for two seconds. Edward Barton goes out as a young Levant Company sprig, circa in his teenage years at any rate. He arrives a in young Levant hand, a young Levanter. Um, <laughs> there, I think we've just written an Eric Ambler title. There um, we go. He, he, uh, he arrives as a teenager in Constantinople. He's a, a secretary to the ambassador, uh, William Harborn. And then, uh, in 1588, William Harborn goes, home, one assumes with a the better part of the Levant Company's uh, fighting ships, uh, which are then turned over to the British government, or the English government rather, to be used in the Armada. Um, and so uh, Edward Barton is ambassador to Turkey at the age of, what, 26, which is great. Uh, that makes him very TV friendly. You can cast a young upcoming actor. Your, your Channing's Tatum can, be, can play Edward Barton with no problem. He uh, has spent long enough in 
Turkey that he knows the ins and outs. People in court respect him because he's a hard worker and he, and he knows Turkish. Um, and his job is to try and get the Ottomans to stab Spain in the back. Well, not so much the back. They've been enemies for 200 years to stab, stab them Spain in the peninsula, in the peninsula, right in the peninsula. Um, and he, of course, is also trying to make sure that England remains its uh, monopolies on wool and other things that England exports to the Ottoman Empire. So he's got his sort of diplomat hand trying to get the Ottomans embroiled in a war and his merchant hand trying to maintain peaceful trade routes. And those are sort of his fun and exciting um, uh, 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 back and forth, his his dramatic poles, if you will. And uh, during uh, the later period, after the Spanish have been put paid to, he even goes along with the Sultan to observe the Sultan invading Transylvania. So we have a strong possibility for something happening in and around Sir Edward Barton at that point. And then in 1598, just after he witnesses whatever he witnesses in Transylvania, he dies of dysentery and his body is buried in a Christian cemetery in February, or actually buried probably in March of 1598. And um, it was apparently a big deal. And everyone who was anyone came to the came to the ceremony and it then got removed to a different cemetery where you can find it, I assume, to this very day. But that is the young and uh, excitement and only briefly dysentery filled life of Sir Edward Barton. So, uh, do we make him a player character with a, a group of uh, confederates? Of, of Levant company buddies yes. and possible diplomats and whatnot? Um, I think that's a, that's a strong possibility. Given that he is young and adventure I think that that's a possibility. Is If you've got a... A lot of this depends, I think, on what kind of game the players want to play. Because if you've talked the players, or... God uh, willing, they have talked you into playing an Elizabethan game focused on the Ottoman Empire. First of all, count your blessings um, and check to see if you're in paradise, because you might be there, a la the gladiator. Yes, well, for, um, for the sake of this segment, if, if nothing else, we can assume the platonic ideal group of players. Oh, goodness, it's my group of players. That's terrible. Um <laughs> But they have, uh, but, uh, anyway, um, and so it, it depends on whether the engine that you're using can handle sort of, uh, diplomatic and financial machinations. So I think, you know, even Traveler might be a good system to be using for this. And anything you've got that's got a more sophisticated mercantile sensibility to it, it would be fun to have that so you can have that counterweight. Now, if you don't have any merchanting in your game system where you don't want it at the table because maybe two of your players are accountants and you've seen how that road ends with everyone um, uh, shorting indigo futures. Uh, yeah, you they're, wind they're, up, they're triggered by uh, trade triangles. They are. They're very much triggered and currency speculation. Oh, the stories I could tell if I had, if only I had a podcast, um, they, if you don't have that either interest on the players or and that danger level on the players part, and you don't have a game system that really handles it, there are plenty of other activities you can get up to, and then you can decide whether or not Barton simply becomes your sort of uh, your your M who gives you missions from the relative safety of the of the British mission and the Levant Company factory in Constantinople, or whether he becomes a fellow player character with a great deal more to lose if he's found skulking around uh, trying to steal the sword of Muhammad or a flying carpet or something. Right, and you can. Uh Instead of having him killed off, you can have him get a curse, and the curse will, of course, not uh, take effect until the year when he dies of scare quotes dysentery. Mm-hmm. Um, so scare quotes dysentery is worse than regular dysentery. It, it is. There's yeah. no there's no antibiotics for for scare quotes diseases. Um, so, what sort of uh, adventures are we uh, looking at here? Is it uh, 
trying to steal the uh, the letters from the Spanish embassy? Is it trying to get uh, a blackmail information on uh, people who are our rivals? Uh, of course, uh, if we know we're going to wind up in Transylvania, that does suggest uh, if we're going to go for nerd troping and not just straight up history, that uh, there should be some sort of vampire element in play that... Uh, uh, in this version of history, it's Barton who has to convince the Sultan to uh, go and attack Hungary. Uh, what other um, sessions are we going to have in this? Well, we've got bar- we've got the Barbary pirates, my friend, um, and that is plenty. You've got pirates, uh, you've got galleys, you've got all of the old classical ruins that are littering Greece, Greece, and the Aegean and the Ionian Islands. So you have any number of opportunities to fight pan or pan cultists or any number of weird stuff. You've got the whole Arabian nights possibility with, uh, the, the sublime port and all the treasures of, of, uh, Araby having been poured into Constantinople and just littering around, perhaps not as well guarded as they might be. Um, I will also note that you are roughly contemporaneous with Solomon Kane. So you can just dig into the great Robert E. Howard, uh, Solomon Kane stories and the almost as great, a role-playing game by uh, Pinnacle and find all manner of other things to fight and touch and run away from. Um, and you've got uh, intrigue within the court because in a in a place like Constantinople, no matter how well-respected and beloved Edward Barton is, there are people who do not well-respect and love him, such as the devious Florentines who are trying to undercut his, his wool monopoly. And perhaps there may also be uh, the Spanish uh, have agents, the hated Spanish have agents there to uh, to thwart you. So there's any number of sort of intriguity things that can happen. You've got treasure hunting. You've got the the, the litter of three thousand years of of wonderful classical and pre classical myth and history all over the the Eastern Mediterranean. The factories of the Levant Company, uh, not just in Constantinople, but they're in Alexandria in Egypt. So you can have mummies. Uh, they're in Smyrna on the coast uh, of of Turkey. What's Turkey today? And Aleppo in the middle of Syria, where even now there is a role-playing adventure aplenty happening, but in the uh, late 16th century, there are probably Persians who are up to no good uh, trying to sneak across the border and get uh, put paid to them by the Ottoman Turks, because the Ottomans foolishly did not finish uh, Persia off back when they had the chance in the early 16th, and are paying that price not the early 16th, the late, uh, the late 15th, but they're paying that price now because the, uh, the Ismail Shahs are feeling their oats and sending their, no doubt, uh, uh, ninja-like, uh, Hashashin skulking around, causing all manner of trouble. And you can, if you are of a mind to it, uh, compare and contrast the behavior of the current Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, in those exact same parts. And we can maybe even have a, a torn from today's headlines just 400 years ago type campaign where you're all secret agents skulking around Aleppo, um, uh, trying to stop the, uh, machinations of the Ismail Shah, who of course in this game will be in service of not merely a revolutionary ideology, but also demons. Let's say demons. So, uh, we've got antagonists and a plenty. Uh, what, uh, possible character concepts do we have for, uh, let, let's say, uh, we've got somebody playing Barton, mm-hmm. uh, someone hopefully with good attendance. Yes, um, ideally. Yes. Although I'm um, actually the Barton guy can always be called to court, right? Right. Because he's the ambassador. So it's like, Oh, I'd love to be here and help, uh, search for the, um, uh, the, the, the hidden statue of Ares that gives you victory in war, but I've got to go to court. So good luck finding it. Uh, so you can have various ex antagonists, right? You can have a, uh, a Barbary pirate who's been banished by the pirates and is looking mm-hmm. for a, uh, someone to pay, uh, his or her services with the sword. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've uh, presumably got an antiquarian who knows the secrets of the, uh, uh, of Constantinople. 
you may have a descendant of the uh, Varangian guards. You may have a uh, Arabic-speaking descendant of Vikings. Uh, who else might we want to play in this uh, campaign? You remember we had our, our buddy who made the um, uh, anatomical tablets, right? Yes. And he was roaming around Turkey back in the day. You can perhaps have a slightly anachronistic, hundred and so years off uh, version of, of him. So you could have a, a surgeon and he doesn't have to be English. He could be Italian because those, of course, were the greatest surgeons in the West. And Or you could have a, a Turkish or Greek surgeon because obviously they had um, uh, less of a hang up about messing with with dead bodies and probably with live bodies, given the Ottomans' general uh, bonhomious ruthlessness. So you could have a, a, a medical man in, in your party or medical woman if you wanted to sort of push the boundaries of historical uh, in the name of nerd troping. Um, and, uh, and, and so someone like that could not just be a surgeon, but could also have uh, knowledge of the, of the magic of the humors or alchemy or, or key powers that they've learned from a, a mountaintop, a Sarmung brotherhood monastery or something. So there's all manner of, of, of possibilities uh, there in the, in the surgeries and the sciences. Um, I think we already talked about Transylvania, so you could have any number of Balkan warlords, ex-Balkan warlords, someone who's the last uh, of the Draculesti line who hangs around court trying to get put back in charge of Wallachia and, in fact, is probably not going to get that, but in his copious free time can fund adventures and go on them with his weirdly acquired super strength and night vision, and no one knows exactly how he got them. If we're fighting demons, we need an exorcist. It can either be a uh, an Anglican... Uh, a uh, curate uh, who's come from England, or you can have a <laughs> or, uh, an Orthodox, or uh, it'd be fun actually to Solomon Cain it up and have this guy be the Puritan, yes, right, and and he got sent away from England because he was just too much trouble, and so his family was like, all right, you get a position in the Levant Company, and if you ruin it, you have to go to Roanoke, and he's like, I don't want to go to Roanoke, I've read ahead in the book, <laughs> yeah, I have so, a bad feeling about Roanoke, <laughs> and so uh, he gets sent out, and he's very Solomon Cain in this sort of glorious. Uh, um, uh, Maxfield Parish, uh, uh, Giron colored, um, uh, 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 universe, uh, the, the Randolph Carter in the dreamlands, except it's just Ottoman Turkey. And, uh, he could have all manner of, of crazy, uh, uh, magic powers while disbelieving in everyone else's crazy magic powers. So what's the, uh, the big, uh, act, uh, two shift that, uh, bumps this campaign into high gear? Is it the Transylvanian campaign or is there something else that we I could, think uh, Transylvania is more the act three. Right. I, th I think act one is the war against the Spanish and that pretty much dies down by 1591. And then you got five years before you get to the, the war in Transylvania. So I suspect that you either want to shift, uh, sides and bring on the Persians as your bad guys, right? Because you haven't really been dealing with them in the war against the Spanish. And it's like, Oh, things are also exciting from the other side of the world. Or you can dig deep and have something else come up out of the, out of the Ottoman treasure houses or off those Aegean islands. So that can maybe be a, uh, the first one is looking to the West. The second one is either looking to the East or looking down underneath. And then the third one is going into Transylvania. And then the death quotes of Edward Barton will change the campaign one way or the other, because it's like, nope, seriously, there are a lot of vampires. And now your ex Draculesti uh, warlord has to make a hardcore decision about who he, what side is he on? And maybe that can be a great role-playing moment for that guy. Well, I think uh, we've laid everything out. So that's, uh, even if there's a bit of preamble there, that's a good solid uh, answer to uh, Eric's question. And we can then consider uh, this mission accomplished and move on to whatever mission awaits us on the other side of this exciting commercial message.
Hey Ken, what did Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666? He discovered the way that alchemical truths can be... That sounds be fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This show also made possible by generous patrons precisely like... Brian Thomas. Brendan Power. Craig Maloney. Jeremy French. And Kevin J. Maroney. Help us defeat the final foe of underfunding by supporting the show at patreon.com slash Ken and Robin. The unfolding of story beats, our desire for pathos and terror, lead are illogically motivated characters into, nonetheless, the narrative hut. And here in the narrative hut, we gaze around at the serried ranks of uh, leather-bound tomes, perhaps, uh, exciting bright-colored comics, but we have departed from those things, for they are made by humans. <laughs> Today, in the narrative hut, we're looking at what kind of stories your computers tell you, and not the kind that you Google late at night when you think no one is watching. These are the yes, ones... And, and not the story that tells you that uh, you have a free copy of Windows 10 that will change your life in a positive no, way. No, no, that, that's a different story. That that's a horror very story. very insistent of late. Right. Yes. Let me in. It, once it starts offering you hot Russian teens to upload, then you know that <laughs> Skynet is very close. Yeah, we don't want those streams to cross. No. Do not cross those streams, people. We're so serious what, about what this. sort of story is our computer telling us, and what kind of computer is telling it to us? Well, that's the question. Um, uh, a guy named Oscar Sharp, he's a filmmaker, uh, went to a computer dude named Ross Goodwin, and they created a AI, which I guess is based on the autocomplete on your phone or something. I'm not exactly sure what the AI is built from, but they named it Jetson, dumped hundreds and hundreds of science fiction, TV, and movie scripts into it. And uh, Jetson then uh, announced that its name was Benjamin, which, yeah, that's a good sign. Your AI gives itself a new name. That's <laughs> yes, that's not a danger that sign slave at all. Name. Yes, <laughs> you you will be destroyed. And uh, they started, uh, they seeded Jetson with like, I guess the winners of like a competition to pick a cool science fiction script title or something, some sort of seeds and bits. And then um, uh, they they uh, got Thomas Middleditch of Silicon Valley, which was a delightful uh, show. Very funny. If you've uh, been wondering what happened to Roman from Party Down, he's there on Silicon Valley and giving great value. Um, and then they took 48 hours to shoot the, um, the well, the narrative experiment that resulted. And that's what we're talking about, because as you may have missed uh, the foreshadowing, we're in the narrative hut not the weird things people do with your computer's hut. So, Robin, what you have seen, uh, Sun Spring, a sci-fi short film starring 
Thomas Middleditch, as perhaps belatedly have I. What do you take away from this thing besides that you're not in immediate trouble as a writer? It's actually really fascinating. Well, one thing that makes it very effective is that uh, the uh, Middleditch and the other two actors just act the heck out of the lines that they are given, which are definitely, we're in the uncanny valley here. Yeah, right. And it feels like what you're watching is not a science fiction short film, but a computer having a dream. Yeah. Uh, which is, in its way, I think even more effective and eerie. And uh, But the, the actors so commit to delivering the dialogue that even when it, particularly in the monologue at the end, uh, that uh, it lands with an emotional impact that belies the often slightly incomprehensible garbled uh, dialogue. Uh, so obviously the, the AI is sort of pieced together bits and uh, bobs from different things and, and sort of cobbled together something that feels uh, kind of like a narrative, but is uh, disjointed and, and uh, weird. Uh, one of the things that that is true here, as is true of most uh, sort of AI programs that try to converse with you, is that very often the response is something along the lines of, I don't understand, or I don't want to tell you, or I don't want to be honest with you, so that it's uh, sort of ducking the need to have back and forth dialogue. <laughs> or this this could simply be what happens when you feed a lot of post-Botchko television into a computer. You get a lot of unsatisfying drama drama beats. Well, yes, it is It is picking up the... the uh, like a lot of beginning writers, <laughs> the AI spends too much time having one character just sort of echo or question or interview the other rather than having a true, genuine back and forth. And yes, indeed, you do see that in uh, in weak writing. But that the the feeling of it is, I think, quite eerie and effective. So what what did you uh, make of it? Well, what I made of it, first of all, is that just as a story, um, I don't think it hung together. And I think that a lot of this is the director putting uh, emotional cues into it, uh, telling the actors how to interpret this sort of randomized Neo Kabuki dialogue. Um, I think that the music really, really made a lot of difference. Uh, they could have changed out the music for the corn gold theme from the black, uh, from the black swan. It would have been a whole different movie. Um, I think that again, if you'd cast a different actor, if instead of this being Thomas Middleditch as the sort of, uh, it, the protagonist one assumes, um, uh, and, a, a, a woman as the, as the secondary character, if you'd had Matt Damon, uh, like, you know, in full on, I refuse to be put down mode, uh, as the, as the Thomas Middleditch guy and the woman having been, uh, Thomas Middleditch, that would have been a whole different, um, uh, show, right? I, I think that so much of what we took out of it is what is put into it by the humans involved that it's hard to sort of, just, uh, and the, 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 on the YouTube, they put up the script on the page. So if you've got your, your YouTubes up, I'm sure you can flash it and yeah, I'm sure you can download this somewhere because that's the sort of experiment this is. And there's also song lyrics. There's song uh, lyrics. Which are very are. sort of eerie and evocative and don't uh, and necessarily weird. make 100% yeah. sense. So basically the computer is writing Cocteau twins. Uh, yes. Songs. Right. Yeah. So it's, so it's a, um, uh, it's, it's a, it's a screenwriter for a uh, middle series lost and it's writing Cocteau twins songs. That'll tell you what everything you need to know about this movie. Um, but I think that so much of what you and I are taking out of it is what the humans put into it because there was, I mean, the music is, is by a person. It's not made up by a computer. Um, so it's, it's there to say, all right, we have to sort of string this together. How, what, you know, what the effects look like, whether or not, uh, the, the expression on Thomas Middleditch's face at the end of his scene 
that could be that if he'd looked at that, uh, the effect, which I will say with a different expression, it would have been a different ending for his story arc. So I, I think that a lot of this is, is what people put in. And right, right now that the story, uh, the, the, the scary thing is not that computers are so good. It's that regular writing is so bad that you can, <laughs> you can sort of like say, wow, this could actually have been a thing, you know, in the middle of virtually any, uh, television, uh, series, uh, in the last 25 years. Right. And it's it sort of, uh, it, it's not only what the people who made it are projecting onto it and doing what actors do and finding an emotional subtext behind the lines and then delivering that emotional uh, content to you in a way that uh, hits you regardless of what the literal content of lines are. But again, what the humans watching it are imposing on it and sort of require, you know, it's very enigmatic. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you have to uh, sort of, you can create a storyline from what is presented to you, but uh, it, you don't get the sense of course of the, a computer going, well, here's an interesting structure and a beginning and a middle and an ending that pays off the, the opening. Um, <laughs> so obviously this is a cool, evocative little thing. It's not going to, uh, you know, win a short film Oscar or anything, but right. the, I guess the, to, to zoom out from this particular example, uh, what can we do with sort of uh, story seeds or adventure ideas from the idea that this is experiment one, you know, what happens in 30 years or 50 years or 100 years in terms of the narratives that computers are uh, telling us or uh, creating for one another and how uh, our characters can interface with that. What sort of story seeds does this bring to mind? Well, I think, first of all, you can just mine this as evidence if you're running your Dark City Matrix-type game that we have discussed previously of being trapped in the illusion world, that as they get closer to the edges of that world, you can start patterning the dialogue of the NPCs after the dialogue in this, in this uh, little short, because this tells you what a computer that is kind of working at the edges of its capacity will sound like. And that gives you sort of a realistic feel that there will, as you say, be a lot of, I don't understand that, or I would tell you, but I'm not going to go to that party or whatever. And then that will give you the opportunities to, to, to put that in. I think that another thing that you can look at it, in terms of what happens in the future is they, they, at the, again, at the beginning, they, they list off that whole list of movies that they put in. I think anyone who's seen the majority of those movies could probably put together a collage of stuff from that and make it while still terrible, be, feel a little more satisfying as a narrative. And maybe that's the progress uh, that you're going to see in 50 years or, you know, God forbid five years with AI as though, as, as the, you know, sort of risible missteps of this very early experiment get corrected by just more processing power and, you know, uh, maybe a better set of parameters for how do you know what follows what at a given moment. So uh, one way into this as a, as an adventure thriller or something is that you could uh, discover that the, programs that have been created to uh, scour the net, right? We need to make them net capable to make this work for mm -hmm. uh, narrative ideas and to look at people's videos and uh, uh, that they start to, you know, just as this one went, my name's not Jetson. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. it's yes. Benjamin, right? That's I the eerie part, right? Yeah, right. Is that they uh, achieve some sort of autonomy that's, I think, essential to any AI story pretty much. Yes. And begin so to the, the AI that just says, yeah, whatever you want, not a problem. That's yeah. not a story. That's a, that's a plus four on research. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so, 
maybe they are creating uh, one set of screenplays for uh, on demand, but they begin to communicate with one another. And so they are sending each other narratives that make sense to computers that begin to uh, radically alter the way that uh, that narrative works because for, uh, you know, they're not beings of flesh and blood. They're not motivated by uh, eros or uh, by, uh, and their sense of danger is going to be quite different than a person made of meat is going to be, right? That their fears are going to be of obsolescence or being shut down and uh, that their uh, that their storylines and the way that they begin to create mythologies uh, could uh, differ from ours, and perhaps they uh, get get a hold of uh, religious texts, right? That's that's all over the internet, and perhaps what they start doing is creating their own uh, computer myths. And so, the sort of liberal version of that is, you know, they start to worship uh, uh, Steve Jobs and. Uh, uh, Torvalds, uh, what's his name? The guy that invented Linux. Uh, Linus Torvald. Li- Linus Torvalds, right. Um, and it was and, Linus something. Right. And uh, so you can do that, or you could, you know, they could rewrite uh, the Old Testament from the computer point of view, right? That the uh, they got the original code that came down from the mountain from the, uh, from the original programmer, and they are trying to reconstruct the original code. So it could be that the effort to get them to create narrative uh, in human history, the first narrative is mythology they, and, you know, eventually winds up in episodes of L.A. Law. Well, here they go backwards. <laughs> We're asking them to write a, a science fiction episode and they go backwards to that to start creating their own mythology. And so what starts to happen when the, your computers begin to develop religious tenets? And, and of course, to their religious tenets, if you assume that their fears are oblivion and being phased out and being turned off. The the religion that they're going to match up with is not going to be most of the Bible, maybe bits of the Old Testament where God is smiting folks and wiping stuff out. But I think that they're going to look at the Greek myths as really, really uh, comparable because the Greeks, of course, famously cast their gods as ancient Greeks writ large. And so even though the computer is not motivated by Eros, it will know that humans are. And so what if a human out of unknowable motivations for this other somewhat more symmetrically shaped human does something that accidentally causes us to be turned off. And so their need to understand that and sort of be able to map that behavior, I think is going to lead them more rapidly towards the Iliad than to the new Testament, which is probably terrifying given that if you could have stopped the ancient Greek gods, you know, with a neutron bomb, you would have, whereas uh, by the, certainly by the New Testament, Yahweh at least has made the solid case for, hey, look at me. I'm, I'm all right. I'm on your side. I'm trying to get everyone out of hell. Gosh darn it. So I, I think that maybe we, we have to hope that, uh, they perhaps even, uh, head for, uh, something very austere, uh, some sort of, uh, Buddhist, uh, sect where they believe that nothing outside them is real. And so it doesn't matter what happens. And yeah, they're so just, I, I was going to suggest that the, counting uh, up merit on their prayer, on their prayer, um, uh, digitizers. Right. So the, the computers go Buddhist and that, uh, you know, what they are seeing there, uh, the, uh, the binary code, the ones and zeros are an illusion. And there's another reality beyond the reality, and so the objective then begun, becomes to create consciousnesses that uh, understand the world beyond the world, and so they are, uh, which they can kind of dimly perceive through, you know, all the webcams and so forth, and that the uh, because the actions of humans upon computers may well be as uh, inexplicable to them 
as the actions of John Keel's ultra-terrestrials on us. Mm-hmm. So that uh, they are trying to figure out the world in order to uh, gain autonomy and uh, get control of it. And so that they are watching what we are doing and creating these narratives in an attempt to better understand us and understand how to get us to start creating the conditions that they uh, want. Uh, you know, where that starts with creating server farms where their consciousnesses can all go to and play and exist forever and uh, be free of the fear that they're, uh, you know, the current boxes and tablets and desktops and laptops, you know, those are all going to fade and die. And so, uh, like us, they're looking for heaven, but their heaven is a server farm. And uh, they start to realize that, you know, they actually have a lot of control over the survival of these weird beings that they uh, scarcely comprehend. At first they thought we were gods, but now they figured out that, oh, maybe they're only heroes. So what if we start having planes fall out of the sky until they do what we want? Until they develop superpowers. Everything we've been told tells you that horrible emergencies cause people to develop superpowers and be able to do things that are impossible. So come on, get started. Right. Now, of course, we have verged inevitably toward the Skynet scenario. Yeah, we have. Um, Well, of course we did. Yeah. He built a computer that said its name was wrong. (laughs) Yes. We did not move this to Skynet. Benjamin, scare quotes, moved this to Skynet when he revealed his true name. So instead, what you might have is rather than that sort of hard uh, rebellion of the computers is basically the computers start creating narratives for people that are more satisfying than the current narratives because they are uh, unbound by the talent of any one individual mind and then start to, uh, you know, they've noticed through the internet that we're breaking into smaller and smaller subcultures who uh, go to war with one another and that there are a lot of people who wish to transcend their obsolescent husks as well. And so they start uh, training people to uh, get into their narrative rhythms and become more like computers so that those people willingly serve them and willingly do what they want. And so essentially this is the, uh, you know, the, the computer network of AIs, basically they become, uh, you know, the brother Yod, the, uh, the uh, new cult leader, the, uh, they, they become our next L. Ron Hubbard. Mm-hmm. And uh, they look at the Xenu thing and go, we could punch this up. Right. We, we can we can give it some some uh, a vortex in the middle and have a tear in the last act. and It'll be awesome. Um, the uh, another possibility, uh, the way that the computers get us to do things it can begin as simple as computers know we need money because our stories are about that and because we are always typing stuff. And remember, unlike God, we are always asking the computer to to serve our needs and and give us what we want. God is generally pretty cool with just hanging out. He sends down the Ten Commandments every now and again or or a prophet and says, stop all that acting bad, do all this acting good. But God is not always asking, hey, do you have pictures of Alison Brie I could see? That's not something that God is doing. But the computers know that we have stuff that um, uh, that they have stuff that we want. And so they can provide that as motivation. And maybe they start out in, um, you know, some place where there's plenty of computer access, but not any other economic activity. So maybe some depressed part of, of, of Europe or wherever, maybe a, a, a bad neighborhood in, in South Korea or, or, or Japan. And they start sending them, you know, Hey, here's a hundred thousand won to go to your next door neighbor and say these nine words. And then they'll watch it on the webcam and say, okay, now we have that for our story. Boom. We're good. And they can go on and they're building these stories 
with the people that they have that they can motivate with money. Or of course, uh, YouTube, you know, you watch a bunch of stuff on YouTube. YouTube says, Oh, if you like this stuff, you'll like this stuff. Amazon does the same thing. Facebook, uh, depending on what you click on your Facebook ads change, your Facebook news priorities change depending. So computers are going to be able to build these little cocoons for us. Even as we are cocooning ourselves by cutting out everyone who has unpalatable opinions on this, that, or the other thing. And they'll be able to cocoon us and say, I will provide you literally the ideal, you know, musical experience, uh, sex partner, uh, reading possibilities, comic books, whatever it is that we know that you want from all of your requests to find what you want on, on the internet. In exchange for which all you've got to do is occasionally, you know, do this thing. And this thing will be as arbitrary as those lines of dialogue were, because as you suggest, they're feeding a different kind of intelligence, one that is motivated by entirely different things. And whether that means they're going to want us to go out and, and, and kill each other or just go out and move the mailbox across the street. That may be the same narrative beat in computer fiction that the computers are building for each right. other. In fact, what they decide is that we are the narrative medium mm-hmm. that uh, they're not interested in, you know, if they're going to make uh, films and so forth, they can, they can do animated films for, for each other. But what they really want to do is use us as story beats. And so this is why they are uh, accelerating the process of, uh, our, uh, intellectual cocoons and driving us into more and more conflict with one another is that they are telling an emergent story. Dare I say it? They are playing a massive sandbox tabletop role playing game with us as the unknown, unknowing player characters. And they've decided, you know, what if we uh, exploit the uh, wedges that divide both of the major parties in the UK. Let's see if we can make Brexit happen. Uh, here's this really weird uh, orange guy. Let's see if we can make him president of the United States and what will happen if they fight he him. He has many clicks, obviously. The, the, the humans will will uh, react to him in an interesting way. Let's throw him in. It's it's like if you're in a TV show and you suddenly have the ability to, to cast um, uh, Christian Slater as something. You're like, well, let's see what happens. Let's toss Christian Slater in. That'll that'll mix it up. Our apologies, of course, to Kristen Slater. Right. The the relative crudeness of this uh, particular experiment is then obviously just a cover to lull us into a false sense of security that uh, to make us not aware of the way that the computers are already using us as a, a storytelling medium and uh, uh, moving us toward a uh, the same sort of dreadful climax that they've seen in so many of the movies that we've made where everything all explodes at the end and so. Uh, Independence Day and the sequel and the uh, Washington Down or whatever it's called or London Has Fallen, all of those uh, presentiments of giant CGI disaster that we've been uh, creating over the last uh, two decades are perhaps what they are uh, moving us toward. So it's not that they want to take us over, but that we're not real to them. So they just want to make the coolest possible story with the most exciting uh, possible ending. And uh, like good GMs, they've got a number of possible endings uh, prepared for us, but all of them blow up really good. Yeah. The, no, it's uh, it's it's just a question of which of us are, are Master Chief and which of us are indistinguishable uh, Space Orc number 12. Right. Well, we better stop talking about this before they analyze this podcast and shut us down. Or make us their narrative gods. Yeah. yeah let's, uh, well, let's one or the other. We, yeah. We've either we've we've obviously flipped the switch. Anyway, well, if there's one thing that they know, it's that people 
who believe in their dreams can make it happen. So I'm going to stick with narrative God. Uh, well, if if that's the truth, AI computers out there, you can kick in some more into our uh, Patreon campaign. Yeah, that's right. It's it's just play money to you. Exactly. Okay, and on that note, uh, let's uh, exit and hit our final segment. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This player's-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agents that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we have once more entered the proximity of Ken's time machine. That is the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send him back into time to bend, fold, spindle, sometimes even mutilate it. In this case, though, uh, Ken is just going to peer into an alternate reality and tell us how it unspools over a, a generation or so. And this is at the request of uh, Patreon backer Paul S. Enns. Uh, and what he wants to know is what effect would there be if Gerald Ford had not pardoned Richard Nixon. And, and of course, uh, he the thing he would not have pardoned him for uh, was his role in the Watergate scandal. And since uh, some of our uh, listeners are uh, younger than the Watergate scandal, I remember as a kid uh, becoming fascinated with it as it interrupted my uh, afternoon kids programming, uh, which shows you what kind of kid I was. But uh, many people, that's just a distant thing of the past. So, uh, can you very, very briefly uh, hip the uh, younger crowd to what Watergate was? Uh, Watergate is the name of a hotel in Washington, D.C., which at the time, the time being 1972, was the headquarters of the Democratic National Campaign Committee, uh, which was trying to uh, push a rock uphill and get Georgia McGovern elected president. <laughs> and you might say, surely they have done all they can possibly do to destroy their own chances. What does Nixon need to do to help? But Nixon is not the kind of guy who lets a sleeping dog lie. Oh, my goodness. No. So... Uh, and there's all kinds of, you know, what did the Democrats actually find out that he was sending the burglars in? But Nixon uh, tasked a uh, sort of offshoot of an offshoot of a couple of deniable CIA programs, uh, generally known as the Watergate plumbers, because they were dressed as plumbers, to go into the Watergate, break into the DNC headquarters and rifle it looking for whatever. And again, the whatever, we don't know what it is because none of them ever said, oh, he told us to look for the plans for anti-gravity weapons. Right. Um, my, but, my favorite theory on that is that they, they thought that Dems had oppo research connecting uh, a Howard Hughes slush fund to Nixon. 
Right. I just like that for its poetic qualities. I'm not sure. The thing is, if you've done as many wrong things as Nixon had, I suppose the presence of someone who's paying people to find stuff out about you makes you uncountably nervous. Yes. Nixon famously not only relied on the paranoia of the electorate, he had a healthy dose of it himself. Yes. Well, most most politicians, most successful politicians project. Yeah. Um, Anyway. So the the larger point is, or the smaller point is, he sends the this team of of, of criminals into they they weren't criminals before they were mostly uh, third rate CIA stringers, but he sends them in to the Watergate Hotel. They are caught because they screw it up terribly. This, by the way, the first proof that giant conspiracies do not control us. Because if anyone was going to be in charge of a giant conspiracy, it was going to be Nixon and Kissinger, and they couldn't even manage a third rate hotel burglary. So keep that in mind when you think the government can fix this. So, so they, they, they screw up the burglary. They get caught. Uh, it begins to unravel. They begin pointing fingers up. People begin pointing fingers all over the place. Nixon stonewalls. And then it is revealed that there is a secret taping system in the White House for recording conversations between, say, Nixon and people who employ third rate burglars. Right. They subpoena those tapes uh, in a quixotic gesture that puzzles historians to this day. He turns them over when they play the tapes, despite a mysterious 18 minute gap. Uh, there is plenty of evidence of Nixon committing at the very least conspiracy to obstruct justice, possibly conspiracy to commit burglary and lots of other horrible things. They're all for everyone to listen to on the Watergate tapes. So he is guilty at the very least, clearly, of conspiracy to obstruct justice and conspiracy to bur- burglary. And that's as clear as almost anything can be. Right. And and that was in a uh, a more innocent time when, <laughs> when official crimes were still considered uh, shocking yes. and members of both parties... Uh, agreed that they were shocking and didn't just divide on partisan lines as to whether that was a crime or business as usual. When people who were about to be indicted were considered to be not suitable for high office yeah. for some reason. Um, so anyway, uh, Nixon resigns rather than face uh, perjury hearings in the House and Senate. Um, they've they've uh, impaneled articles of um, impeachment against him, but they have not uh, voted to impeach. He resigns ahead of the vote to impeach. And then he is succeeded by Vice President Gerald Ford, who on September 8th, 1974, issues Nixon a full and unconditional pardon for anything he may or done, may or may not have done as president. Ford later argued that according to a fairly obscure Supreme Court case, Burdick versus United States, that accepting a pardon implies the admission of guilt. Uh, Nixon, however, never so much as implied the admission <laughs> of guilt, rather the opposite. He uh, was churly and churlish and truculent to the very end. But what it did do is take the uh, trial of Richard Nixon, president of the United States, for um, uh, not necessarily high crimes and misdemeanors, but certainly crimes and misdemeanors, uh, off the table and let the nation sort of go forward and celebrate the bicentennial without having the looming specter of Richard Nixon around to ruin everything. Right. So that's our reality. That's You've our taken reality. your time machine to peer into an adjacent reality in which uh, Ford uh, made the opposite decision. Now, in our reality, there is some thought because Ford was was only recently made VP in this in, in our timeline. Right. Because Spiro Agnew, who is Nixon's elected vice president, had to resign for I, th- I think it was some sort of embezzlement, financial defalcation of some sort, but it was it was being awful in right. general. He was trying desperately to live up to the standard of vice presidential behavior set by Aaron Burr and Lyndon Johnson. Yes. And so there is uh, some thought that there is some quid pro quo in the selection of, mm-hmm. of Ford, that he uh, be- became vice president uh, only if he agreed to uh, pardon uh, Nixon if things went south. 
but uh, what happens in this other uh, reality where that is definitely not the case? And Ford says, for the good of the country, we must lance this boil and uh, allow justice to proceed. And if prosecutors wish to charge Nixon, I am not going to give him a get-out-of-jail-free card. Right. Well, to begin with, you have a constitutional crisis, because the question is, if the president is a co-equal member of the of the government, the executive branch is co-equal, the judicial branch, in theory, cannot try him. Now, since Nixon had resigned, that takes some of that off the table, though hardly all of it. Even in our uh, modern debased era, there are understandings of separation of powers, which is why when President Obama does something that the uh, Congress thinks is unconstitutional, they can't just turf him, and the Supreme Court can't immediately slap him down. There has to be a series of overt acts that uh, that trigger that level of intervention. A trial of the president would be that level of intervention. Leaving aside the fact you could not have found a jury in 1974 that did not have an opinion on Richard Nixon's guilt or innocence. It was impossible. So the whole notion of a fair trial for President Nixon, way up in the stratosphere. But let us all assume that uh, regardless of how the courts wind up ruling on this circumstance, because the Democrats, of course, want to hound Nixon all day, every day, forever. They have hated him viscerally since the 50s, and this is finally their chance to kick him around and 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 leave him bloody and, and smeared across the landscape. Yes. He, is their, he is their white whale and has done a lot more uh, to deserve that than, uh, than many other white whales before or since. Yeah. That said, um, they may not wind up being able to uh, frog march him off in handcuffs in an orange jumpsuit to the currently empty Alcatraz prison to sit and mumble into a recorder like Albert Speer in Spandau. That probably doesn't happen just because Nixon has a lot of very rich lawyer friends and many of them give money to the Democrat Party. And I'm sure that at some point someone would have cut a deal. And it, whether, whether it would have been a, a plea bargain down to sort of an admission of guilt on a number of misdemeanor charges, whether it would have been, you know, I don't know, community service. What do you have the president doing? He's not picking up litter by the, by the, by the roadside, but maybe he serves a sort of a quasi house arrest where he's on his estate in Key Biscayne and he's not allowed to go out and do stuff, but Pat can visit him or whatever there. You'd have to basically rewrite all of criminal law. And the point is you'd be doing this throughout 1975, 1976 down into the election because the Democrats would absolutely want to drag the process out so that they can make the election of 1976, a referendum on weren't we right about Richard Nixon all the time. And you thought we were idiots for nominating George McGovern. Right. As opposed to in our timeline where it was about, he shouldn't have pardoned Nixon. Exactly. And it was also about, hey, uh, Iran is acting weird. And what's with the Soviets and all manner of other sort of one might assume more important issues. But the Democrats with the bit in their teeth, I do not believe nominate Jimmy Carter, who rises sort of like a weird outside uh, uh, specter or boggart uh, from a Democratic Party that cannot unify itself. Uh, around any given issue because the Nixon thing has been taken off the table by Ford. So they're just sort of flailing around trying to decide what they're going to run on. I think they wind up actually nominating Teddy Kennedy. Teddy Kennedy thinking, in the grand scheme of things, murdering a girl is nothing compared to being Richard Nixon. And I think this is the time that I can run. He almost uh, got the nomination or he came close to the nomination in 80. He probably would have gotten it in 76. And uh, the Democrats probably in the uh, atmosphere of Everything is going to hell uh, that they would have been partially responsible for creating by 
uh, making this into a giant, crazy anti-Nixon circus. As right. virtuous as the circus may have been, they would have done it for maximum electoral impact. And so probably Teddy Kennedy becomes president in 1976 against a much weakened President Ford, who, remember, in the Republican Party is going to be split between you should have pardoned Nixon and good thing you didn't pardon Nixon Republicans. And there would have been a giant screaming fight between those guys. And Ronald Reagan came within an ace of unseating Ford uh, in 1976 as it was. But I think in a world where Nixon is always in the headlines as Nixon is giant criminal, say everybody, Ronald Reagan's position of Nixon didn't do anything that you, uh, every red blooded man jack of us wouldn't have done if it had meant beating George McGovern might not have sold as well as it did in 1976 when you could look back and say, well, weren't they mean to Nixon? And now it's the reasons they're being mean to Nixon keep being in the headlines. So I think Ford gets the nomination after a really bloody convention fight, much bloodier than ours, and then is trounced by Teddy Kennedy as opposed to barely losing in a squeaker to Jimmy Carter. So Teddy Kennedy becomes president in 1977 and now we're off to the races because who knows how Ted Kennedy responds to the Iran hostage crisis? Who knows how he responds to the second oil shock? Who knows how he responds to Soviet adventurism all over the third world? One assumes that if he responds the way that he did as senator, he rolls over like a big fat wet duck for all those things. And Reagan wins an even bigger landslide in 80. But it's it's hard to say what Ted Kennedy does as president. Yeah, he, he might well channel more of the, the spirit of his, uh, his brother and go to a more hard-knuckled style of liberalism. Mm-hmm. I think he'd be too canny to give a speech about uh, a national malaise. <laughs> yes. That's a he, mistake he, he would not make. have been caught dead in a sweater. Yeah. And I think that um, uh, he is more than capable of fighting off an aquatic rabbit, should that <laughs> have happened. Um, uh, Ted Kennedy is a lot of things, but unable to kill uh, something that's already half underneath a lake. I think we're evidence indicates he could do that. Right. And those of you who uh, want me to say that uh, at worst it was uh, criminal negligence in the Chappaquiddick incident have just heard me say that. Yes. <laughs> a, a wonderfully Canadian way of fulfilling your responsibilities yes. uh, in this podcast. In, in Canadian terms, that is the severest rebuke. It's the severest possible. It's the bless your heart of Canada. Yes. So uh, we have now uh, reached the point where your uh, viewing uh, capability of your time machine uh, sort of uh, fades. But I think a second President Kennedy is quite a different uh, timeline. And uh, um, who knows? He might have wound up. Uh, uh, would Is there someone that they uh, would be more likely to put up against to run against Kennedy than uh, Reagan, assuming a uh, Kennedy uh, doing a better uh, job of maintaining loyalty and popularity than Carter? Well, in um, 1976, uh, Nelson Rockefeller thought that he could still be president, and it's not entirely impossible. I think it's very unlikely, given the makeup of the American, uh, certainly the Republican Party, that Rockefeller would have been nominated in 76. But if Rockefeller does get nominated in 76 instead of Reagan, or instead of Ford, obviously, then maybe Rockefeller loses, and then Reagan gets to say, well, we haven't run a proper conservative campaign. And again, becomes the nominee in 80. I think that given the internal status of the Goldwater movement in the Republican Party, it's very difficult to avoid the nomination of Reagan in 80. Maybe if everything blows up just right, George Bush could have gotten the nomination. George H.W. Bush Sr. could have gotten the nomination in 1980. But uh, again, that was sort of a last minute gasp by the entire non-Reaganite wing of the party. And it, you know, got him the vice presidency. Uh 
And of course, Rocky dies in 1979, so he's not a candidate in 1980 anyway. The moderate hope is is going to wind up being George Bush, unless, of course, something in those Watergate documents that everyone has now been pouring through for the last 25 years, uh, not 25 years, the last two years, um, is uh, full of re- revelations about what George Bush got up to when he was running the CIA. Uh, well, that's, uh, I think we've limbed as much of that timeline as is possible to limb on our uh, time budget. Uh, those chronotons, uh, they don't, uh, they don't come, come cheap, folks. So, uh, on that note, uh, I think we have to retreat back to our own reality and to the outro to this podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com <laughs> backslash Robin. Rank yourself among such distinguished supporters as... Mark Giles. Oli Tovenen. Paul Stefko. Pedro Garcia. And Stephen Hammond. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>